Well, happy, happy birthday, Fair Oaks. It was 66 years ago this weekend that 37 people gathered in Pleasant Hill in a storefront with a dream uh, to see this valley transformed by the life and love of Jesus. And, and here we stand some 66 years later, depending on your math, 66 years later, uh, is the 841 baptisms later. Did you see that? 66 years, 841 baptisms. Here we stand is the latest thread, an incredible story that Jesus is still writing in this place. Uh, and there's threads all over this room. It's okay to clap today. It's our birthday. We'll figure it out. We're Baptist. I know. But um, look, I know some of you got saved here. Is that your story? Yes. It's okay to clap for that. I think it's right to clap for that. Uh, some of you, you came back to your faith here. God woke you up like our boy Abram last week, and you came back to your faith. You came back to life. Anyone find um, freedom and help in the name of Jesus here? Yes, praise God for that. Maybe I'm the only one that's pumped up today. Did you know it's our birthday? Did you know Jesus is alive and he's still changing life? And it's not the end of it. There are some of you that met your spouse here and you had children and you started a family uh, and, and that started ringing out the goodness of God and you're the reason that our children's ministry is overflowing with needs for volunteers right now. Yes, which by the way, that's a true story. And so uh, if you love Jesus and love kids, uh, here's my plug. Uh, please see us at the info desk after service. Boy, do we have a great area that you can serve on the front lines of ministry here at Fair Oaks. Uh, but we, we love it because this is the vision to spread life and love throughout this valley. And whether or not you do that, through physically having children or not, I just want to prophesy a word over you today. That if your life has been changed by Jesus here, um, or anywhere, really. If your life has been changed by Jesus, um, then God has a plan to use you to help bring that change to the next generation, to bring that life to more of this valley, to continue the threads of this story that he's been writing here for the past six decades. And yes, and um, because look, for as extraordinary as everything as we saw in that video is, um, that 37 people could lead to all of that. I want to make the case that what you saw in that video is what nor a normal life of faith looks like. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 14. Uh, we're going to go through today a chapter of the Bible you've probably never heard before um, because it's full of names that no one knows how to pronounce. Um, but uh, in this chapter, there's an important lesson about living life by faith um, that's particularly relevant for us on a day like this. And so here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to read these names confidently and quickly, and you're going to pretend I'm doing a good job. Sound good? All right, Genesis chapter 14. Happy birthday, Fair Oaks. Thank you, Jesus. Let's get going and see what he's got for us. In the days of Amphrel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, uh, Chedorlaomer, uh, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goiam. Some of you are like, I speak Elvish. He definitely got that one wrong. <laughs> Which makes you a nerd, but I hope you're enjoying the new Lord of the Rings show. Verse 2. <laughs> These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Amada, Shemabar, king of Zeboiim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Thanks for that. Verse 3, and all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. 
12 years after they had served, uh, we're going to call this guy the Cheddar King. He's all over this chapter. I can't do this name. 12 years uh, they had served the Cheddar King, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Cheddar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and the Asherathacharim, the Zuam in Ham, the Em in Shavakirathim, and the Horites in their hill country. See why you've never heard this chapter preached before, but there's good news here. As far as Zir and El Paran on the border of the wilderness, verse 7. Then they turned back and they came in Mishpat, that is Kadesh. And they defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in the Hazo Tamar. Verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adama, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined in battle in the valley of Siddim with Cheddar and all the kings that were with him. Four kings against five. Verse 10. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, which for those of you like me that had to look that up, those are tar pits. This is a, a sticky substance that was used as like, almost like a form of concrete in the ancient world. Uh, so it's full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, as they fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. In other words, the battle's not going well for Sodom and Gomorrah and their team. Verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born of his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobath, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and all the people. Okay. Here's what's going on here. <laughs> Thank you for those of you that prayed for your pastor during that. Here's, here's what's going on there. Um, there's a regional conflict going on where you've got King Cheddar and three of his kingdom buddies. So you've got four kingdoms together. Um, they are marching down uh, to lay waste to five rebellious kingdoms of which Sodom and Gomorrah are two of the five. And um, on their way, marching down through the region, uh, they uh, lay waste to all the powers along the way, the Amalekites, the Rephaim, all those guys. They get there, they lay waste to a, a bigger confederacy of five kings. They lay waste to them to where they land in the tar pits, they're running. And in the process of this conflict, Lot, who is living in the land of Sodom, which is on the losing side, is captured. He's taken away into captive with his wife, with his children, with everything he has. And we talked a little bit about this guy a lot last week. We're going to talk about him more today um, because the reality is we all have a lot in our life. Uh, we all have a lot going on, I know that, but we all have a person-like lot in our life. And, and I don't mean that maybe necessarily how you're thinking of it right now. Um, see, this guy Lot, he's going to show up again and again in the story of Abraham, and uh, he he has a lot of problems. It's oftentimes like this. He has a lot of drama going on. Like, he is a lot. He is very appropriately named. And, and some of you have friends like this. Um, don't raise your hand right now to say yes and amen if you brought them to church. 
Uh, but, but Lot's this guy with a lot of drama in his life. There's always a crisis. There's always something going on. Now, what, you have to remember what we said last week, that everybody is imperfect until glory, that we all are some kind of messy. And, and hear me, whether your mess is more external and everyone can see it and people go, you're a lot, or your mess is more internal and you struggle with pride and self-reliance, at the end of the day, we are going to be all some sort of mess until glory. And so when I say we all have a lot in our life, I don't mean somebody whose life is um, often messy and full of problems. Because I think that describes a lot of us in this room. When I say that we have a lot in our life, here, here's the essential difference between Lot and Abraham. Here's the essential thing that you've got to know about Lot. While Abraham moves toward God in his mess, and after the catastrophe in Egypt, he goes back to God, and he calls on his name, and he asks for grace. What Lot does is he moves further and further away from God with every crisis, with everything that happens in his life. We saw this last week that he's moving eastward, which in the book of Genesis is not a good idea. This is moving east of Eden. Some of you have read that book coming from the idea here that in Genesis, when you move east, you're moving away from the presence of God. You're moving away from the blessing of God. You're moving away from faith. And so when I say we all have a lot in our life, this is what I'm talking about. Somebody who's moving away from God. Somebody who's not living by faith. And they might have their life more put together externally than this guy Lot. They might even have their life more put together externally than you. But if you are moving away from God and away from faith, then regardless of your personality, it's going to bring great danger into your life. And we see that in a very tangible way in Lot's story here. Um, remember last week, uh, after causing a lot of drama for Abram, uh, Abram comes to Lot, uh, Lot and says, hey, I want to give you the first and best pick of the land. So you pick where you want to start a family. You pick where you want to start your career and start your business. You pick where you want to go. You get the first and the best pick. Uh, Abram loves his nephew Lot. He's so gracious, so kind to Lot. And what Lot did with that offer is rather than live by faith, and pray about it and talk to God about important questions about where, where do you want me to live? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do with my career? What Lot does is he says, no, nah, I've got this. I don't need to talk to God like my uncle Abram. Uh, I'm a smart guy. I can figure this out for myself. And so he picks the land that looks good to him, the land of Sodom. Dun, dun, dun. And that's a bad choice for a lot of reasons. One of those reasons we see immediately in our text here that the land of Sodom um, apparently lived in such a way to anger the nations around them to where the, the King Cheddar and his whole confederacy would come from far away just to deal with the injustice and evil of Sodom, kind of like we're going to see God do in a few chapters. But here, it's not God doing it. It's just other humans. They're like, you guys are bad people. You're hurting the world. Someone's got to put it down. And so King Cheddar marches down with his army, and he lays waste to the region. He destroys the city. And in the process, Lot is taken away captive, along with his wife and everything he has. Now, I want you to notice what Abram doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, you made your bed, Lot. Live in it. He doesn't say, you made a poor choice. This is what happens when you live by sight instead of faith, dummy. 
He doesn't say, that's your destructive choice, that's not my problem. See, you'll see people say this in the world sometimes. What's crazy is you'll hear it even in the church, that that person's destructive choices aren't my problem. It's not my responsibility to enter in and to help that person. And, and, and hear me, I think that's crazy because that mentality, it lacks faith. What that mentality is, is... It forgets how gracious that God has been to us. How many times that we have run from him. How many times we have made foolish decisions. And in our foolishness, in our running, God pursued us. God met us there. God came after us there. Abram has just come out of this debacle in Egypt. He has no delusions about his own strength. He knows that God has been gracious to him. He is well aware of that. And so in full faith of God's grace to him, he doesn't say, Lot, that's your problem. Live with the choices you made. What Abram does is he gets up and he pursues his foolish nephew, Lot, who's making more destructive choices in his life. And, and I'm going to make the case today that this is the essence of what faith does. Uh, faith in a God who is gracious towards us always moves towards those who are in need of grace in our life. You can't say, I believe that God's been gracious to me and then withhold that grace from everyone around you. If you believe that God's been gracious to you like Abram does, it's going to make you move with compassion and love. Hear me, not because the pastor guilted you in a sermon toward it, but because from your heart, you're like, this is what God has done for me. And so how could I not move with compassion and grace and love towards those whose lives are messy, towards those who are moving away from God, towards those whose maybe sin that I don't understand, but I know that I have my own. This is what faith does. And we see it cover to cover in the Bible. Um, Paul, one of the first disciples of Jesus who wrote most of the New Testament, he says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Um, I love that right there. Uh, if you think the Christian life is about obeying rules and doing all the right stuff, I hope you'll hear what Paul just said. He said the Christian life, it's like being in love where Jesus begins to take over your life and give you new priorities and new desires, not because you have to, but because you're in love. This is the Christian life, according to Paul. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was died and raised. From now on, therefore, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and catch this, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What Paul's saying is if Jesus has changed your life, 
then you have a ministry to go and tell others about that. Not because you have to, but because you're in love. And this is what love does. Love naturally tells others about what you're excited about. This is what we see. This is really the big idea of this text, that if you've been blessed by God, he has blessed you. Yes, to bless you, but not to terminate on you in order to make you a blessing to the world around you. This is what God said to Abram the day he called him. This is what we see at life in this story, that if you have been blessed by God, you have a ministry of reconciliation. It's what God told Abram from day one. It's what Paul saw after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it's exactly what we see at work in this story. And look, there's so much going on in this story. Um, Like, this is the first uh, warfare described in the Bible. And, and so I want to walk through the details and show you some of the nuance and point out some of the significance of the things that are here because I'm a nerd and I find that fun. But because I think that would interest like three of you, And because, frankly, because it's our birthday and we're celebrating Jesus and the ministry that he has been doing here, I think it's far more appropriate that we keep our eyes on the main thing in this text. And that is how Abram goes after Lot in faith. And so what we're going to do for the rest of the morning here is we're going to look at three lessons from this story that we can apply to our own ministry of reconciliation in our own lives today. Um, Because here's what I know. Most of you have heard this before. Like, there's not a lot of you going like, what? I didn't know I'm supposed to share my faith. This is groundbreaking. I had no idea. There's some of you rolling your eyes. You're like, oh, I've heard this so many times before. When's he going to move on? And look, there's so many books about how to share your faith. Um, like, especially in recent years, is this idea of being a missional church, if you've heard that buzzword, is really blowing up. Um, really being recovered, but we put new terms on it, so we think it's new. And so look, there's a lot of books out there, which books and conferences, and, and those are good and right in their place. But for all of our books and conferences on how to practically do this, I think by and large, we're still stuck. And I think if we could be really honest, the reason that by and large, we're still stuck, it's because practical tips is not our ultimate issue here. Our ultimate issue is that we lack faith to get in the game. And so so what I want to do this morning, what I've been praying that God would do is is we look at the story of this man of faith and see how he pursues Lot. My prayer has been that the spirit of the living God would stir in this room, would stir in our hearts this morning a fresh faith in all of us that we might step into the game like Abram and like so many before us here at Fair Oaks and around the world. So we're going to look at three lessons from the story. You ready to look at those? All right. Some of you are skeptical. Hang in there and just be open to what God wants to do in you this morning. I pray in the name of Jesus that the Spirit of God would move in us this morning. Lesson number one, expect great things from God. Um, See, one of the details that I think we tend to blow by in this story, um, unless you have one of those fancy ESV study Bibles, uh, but one of the details that I think we tend to blow by because we have some cultural distance from this story is the might of King Cheddar's army. Um, the original audience would not have blown by that. If you, if you go back and look at who he laid waste to, you'll read the Amalekites, which read the Old Testament to see how powerful those guys and how much problems they caused for God's people. So he laid waste to the Amalekites. Uh, his army laid waste to the Rephaim, which if you remember from last year in the book of Genesis, those are the weird like demon, human, offspring, giant creatures. So, so think an entire nation of Goliaths. That army's not going to lose a lot of battles, but 
King Cheddar and his army, they wiped the floor with Goliath and his boys. They kept going. They wiped the floor with the Amorites. And all of that is on its way to lay waste to Sodom and Gomorrah and the three other nations that were partnered with them. In other words, this is a powerful army. And Abram sets out to fight this army with, did you catch who? The guys sitting on his couch. It's the men in his household. Now, his household's bigger than yours because Father Abraham had many sons and, and God's doing a, a mighty thing there. But like, like 318 guys, the text tells us exactly how many men were in his household. 318 guys. Uh, that, even if they're like Hebrew special force ninjas, like specially trained, that's not a lot of guys when you're going up against an army like King Cheddar's, Amen. And, and, and look, it's not like, we've seen too many Rambo movies to like not be amazed by this. It's not like Abram is Rambo. This guy's 75. <laughs> I'll go easy. That means he's smart and can plan the battle, but he ain't leading the charge. And, and, and more than that, we just saw last week, this guy cowered in fear in Egypt over the power of one guy. But here, with King Cheddar's army tearing through the region, he doesn't bat an eye. He says to the fellas in his house, he's like, all right, boys, saddle up, let's go. Is anybody like, where was this guy last week? Any women like that? Uh, if I'm Sarah, I've got some questions. See, here's the difference. Here's what's, there is a major difference, and it's the difference that faith makes. See, if you're living by the flesh and living by what you can see, then Abram's response to Lot would be, sorry, buddy, I'd love to help you, but I'm not Liam Neeson. I do not have a particular set of skills. I'm 75. You're going to have to learn to live life as a slave, and I hope nothing too bad happens to the rest of your family. If, if you're living by uh, sight and what you can see, that's absolutely the response of this guy. That's what we saw Abram do last week. But he doesn't do that here. What Abram says is he hears the report about this massive army laying waste to the region, and he says to the guys in his house, he says, saddle up, let's go, because here is the point. He expects that God will do something. We're going to see this again and again throughout the story of Abram. He doesn't always know what God is going to do or how God will show up, but he, he time and time again demonstrates this undying belief that God will show up even when it seems crazy, even when he says leave your family and your source of identity and security and go to the land that I'll show you later. And everyone's like, Abram, I don't think that's a good idea. He has this belief that I don't know how God's going to do it, but I believe that God will show up. We saw that in his call. We're seeing that here. This is what we see again and again in the story of this man of faith. He expects God to do something. And so even when it looks crazy, he sets out after the army. And when it comes to sharing our faith, um, if I'm honest, I think we often tend to lack this. I think it's why we tend to fail to even get in the game, because we look at the lots in our life, and we say, um, 
man, there's that thing in their life that is such a barrier to ever believing in Jesus, or there's too much church hurt there, or there's whatever the details are, we can look at the people in our life and go, they've said no too many times. There's no way this person will ever love Jesus. Or maybe we don't look at them, maybe we look at ourselves and we say, I'm too old. Or maybe it's not, I'm too old, it's, um, you know, I don't have enough Bible knowledge and I don't know enough answers. And if I start talking about Jesus, they're going to ask me about evolution and how the world got here. And I, I, don't, I don't know how to help them. And so for whatever reason, we look at the lots in our life, we look at ourselves. And when we look in the flesh, we say, there's no way it could happen. And so we don't go out to pursue. We sit back and we simply grieve that this person that we love so much seems so far from God. And if that's you this morning, I want to I encourage you this morning to expect more from God. He's a big God. It's what we see in this story, and I think so often we forget this. I know that I can, where we can tend to live in the flesh and operate according to what we think is possible. And hear me, this is why we live such ordinary lives that look foreign to anything we read in the pages of Scripture. And it's why when we read this book, we're like, why was God so active back then and not in my life today? And we assume the problem is God, when in reality, I think if we could be really honest— we tend not to have the same expectations of God that the people in Scripture did. And look, remember what I said last week. It's not like the people in Scripture were these superheroes that never struggled. Certainly that's not the case. But what we see from cover to cover in the Bible is the men and the women that are lifted up as examples of faith for all of their flaws— They believed that the God who showed up in Abram's day would show up again in their day. They expected great things from God, and that led them to pursue armies and to walk through fire and to sing in prison and to turn the world upside down. Faith expects great things from God, and my prayer is that he would stir that kind of faith in us again. Number two. And and very related to that, number two, faith not only expects great things from God, but in the words of William Carey, faith attempts great things for God. See, I I want you to notice, Abram doesn't just sit on his couch and go, I think God's going to do something really, really great. I can't wait to see what it is. And then open a bag of Cheetos. And then open up Facebook and go online and play video games and go to work and work way too long and hard with no gospel intentionality. Like, he, he doesn't just sit back and go, I can't wait to see what God's going to do. It's going to be awesome. Like, he expects great things from God, and so he gets off his butt and he gets into the game. He gets off the couch and he says, guys, let's go. Let's pursue. Because Abram understood that the primary way that God works in the world is through his people. He's not forgotten what God said in Genesis chapter 12, that my plan to bless the world is by blessing you. It's through you that I'm going to bless the world. And so Abram believes that God can do mighty things. He expects great things from God, and that faith leads him to go and divide his forces and to attack at night and to sneak up on this mighty army. It leads him to attempt a great thing for God. Now, I point out this rather obvious point that he actually did it. 
because there's a lot of churches and a lot of Christians who talk a big game where they're going to say theologically, like, of course I believe God can do this. Here's my statement of faith and my 17 verses telling you how sovereign and powerful I think God is. But their ministry and their life shows nothing of that kind of faith. It's sitting back and waiting for people to come and find us and to come in here and walk down the aisle and just say, would anyone like to tell me about Jesus? Which James, the brother of Jesus, uh, would say about that, yeah, you don't actually believe that God can do great things. You don't actually expect God to do great things. Because if it's an idea in your head that's not present in your life, that's not what the Bible means by faith. Faith expects great things of God. And when you actually expect that, it leads you to step out and take risks like we see in the life of Abram. And there's so many Christians today who are not only passive and sit back and do nothing because their belief is only theoretical, but they will actually criticize and take shots at the Abrams that are at least trying. So they'll sit on Twitter and on their watch blogs and say, oh, Abram, you shouldn't have attacked at night, bro. If you really believed in God, you'd attack head on in daylight. Where's your faith, man? And they sit there and they critique and they criticize the people that are actually in the game. And, 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 and to that, I would just say, yeah, Abram had great faith, but he also had a plan. And in the Bible, those two don't work against each other. They work together. Abram believed that God was able. And so based on that belief, he said, I know God has promised to use me. So I'm going to use the brain, the uh, friends that God has given me. And we are going to get in the game and use what we've got to as creatively as possible, bring God's blessing to this situation. Abram had faith. He also had a plan. And don't you dare let anyone tell you if you have a plan that lacks faith, because I'm going to press back their lack of planning reveals a lack of faith. The fact that they're not even trying and getting in the game. And so if, if you're sitting here and, and God's awakening a fresh faith in you and you're beginning to feel like, I, no, I think I actually believe he could do that. I actually think that he could break through in the life of this lot that I love so much. If that's you, then my question to you today to process, to begin to talk through is what's your plan? Seriously, because faith doesn't just expect great things of God, but faith attempts great things for God, knowing that we are the primary means by which he loves to work in the world. And that the God of the Bible, for some reason, seems to love working through the faith-filled, crazy, at times downright wacky plans of his people, like this guy attacking in the middle of the night. Um, and the people who started this church understood this. There's so many stories throughout the history of Fair Oaks that I could tell. I was, I was sifting through them all this morning. There's so many great stories of people attempting great things for God in the history of this church. One of my favorite is uh, when 17 phone lines were installed at the campus here to where a rotating pool of church members could come through and cold call people to share the gospel. Like seriously, think about this. Would you do that? Some of you are like, I was there, I did that. Praise God for your faith. I look at that and I, I just be honest with you, I'm like, I would go, ooh, that's gonna be awkward. Like telemarketing, people are already like upset at you for like cold calling them. This is not the best way to share Jesus. I would go, no way is that gonna work. But there were people that were baptized in this church because of that. There were people that met Jesus because of that. They tried something. It looked crazy, but rather than criticize 
those who are attempting great things for God in faith? What if we said, hey, let's do it together. How can I partner with you? And instead of me sitting on the sidelines and critiquing you, maybe you can help me get in the game. There's a great history of that here at our church. And while it looked crazy to cold call people for Jesus, apart from faith, faith says, well, if he did it before, he could do it again. And so maybe some of you will find the ministry of cold calling people for Jesus. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. I don't know what it's going to look like for you, but faith expects great things from God. And based on that faith, steps out of faith and starts skate parks and, uh, in the church parking lot, which, wow, way to go allowing that, which cold calls people for Jesus. And these are corporate expressions, but there's individual ways this plays out in your life every day. So if you want to start small, Maybe you sign up for that gym membership or that fitness class that you know will allow you to build a relationship with that lot in your life. Even if you're like, I think I might look foolish, great, use that as an opportunity to say, me and my foolishness, Jesus loves me, and now we're talking Jesus. Like maybe you take the opportunity to ask that person in your life, how can I be praying for you? Maybe you ask that neighbor that you've known for years that never brings in their cans that clearly needs Jesus, where are you at spiritually? Look, look see, I, I know we tend to think like, oh, I can't ask someone how I could pray for them. I can't ask where they're at spiritually because we watch too much TV and we believe that people would get angry at those kinds of questions. Can I just tell you, somebody that regularly has experimented with asking this, like even the most secular people I've known, if you ask how can I pray for you, they're not going to say, how dare you? They're going to, my vast experience, is they're going to want to hedge their bets. I can say, here's how you can pray for me, because it's a joy so often says here, when people ask you to pray, they're asking for you to care. When she says it, it rhymes. I, I messed that one up. But even someone that's not a Christian will feel cared for by you asking how you can pray for them. And as you pray for them, if God shows up, which faith expects great things, wouldn't that be a great opportunity? Or if you ask someone, where are you at spiritually? I thought, oh, I can't ask someone that. The president at Converge, I was in a meeting where he was encouraging us to ask this. I started asking people this. They love talking about it. Like the most non-Christian people I love will tell you their church background. They'll tell you their church hurt. They'll tell you all this stuff. Like people are eager to have spiritual conversations. And so I know we tend to think, oh, I can't ask that. I want to encourage you this morning that that's a lie. Of course you can ask that. You can always ask a real person a real question. Don't turn them into a project. See them as a person to be loved. Be curious and begin to ask, how can I pray for you? Where are you at spiritually? Maybe you step out and take some of these kinds of risks. I don't know what it looks like for you, but faith expects great things of God and it attempts great things for God, giving him room to work in and through us in our midst. And if we're going to be a church that has a video to show in six years, and 66 years from now, to celebrate the bigness of God's grace, we've got to be a church that recovers this kind of faith in our day. So Abram, he, he goes after the army. And notice, by the way, he does not go alone. 
Um, we're going to talk about this on Wednesday night. There's a whole message in this here that we're really going to go through on Wednesday night about how Abram doesn't go alone. He grabs three of his closest friends and he goes with them because life isn't meant to be done on your own. And I, I can't preach Wednesday night. I got to keep moving here. But I will say this. If you're not planning to come on Wednesday night, I want to ask you to change your plans to join us. It's six weeks that can change your life and I believe will change this valley. It's one of the great things we're attempting for God this fall. Um, but I got to keep moving. Just notice he doesn't go alone. He grabs his three guys and he says, let's go together. And he goes after the army. He expects great things from God. He attempts this wacky little maneuver at night and God shows up. God does a miracle. And this army of 318 Hebrew ninja assassins is able to take down King Cheddar and his army. And so Abram brings Lot and his wife, their children, and all their extended household and all the possessions back safely. And, and this leads to our third lesson, because when, when you begin to experience victory, that is when you're in the most danger. And, and, and to see that, we've got to finish the story here. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Cheddar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, who the book of Hebrews tells us that name means king of righteousness. Just hang on to that one. Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is another word for Jerusalem. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but you take for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshkol and Mamre, that's his three boys, let these guys take their share. See, what we see at the end of the story is um, what I said, that, when, that things are the most dangerous when you begin to see progress. See, Abram, he, he goes out to pursue these kings, to, to bring Lot back. And when he returns from this great victory, he's, he's at this great moment where God has moved mightily. He's seen progress in his life. He's becoming a blessing to the nations. And when he returns from this victory, he's met by two kings who give him two very different ways to respond to what just happened. The first is the king of Sodom, who has apparently dug himself out of the bitumen pit by now. And he comes and he says, hey, Abram, you're awesome. You, you saved my bacon. You are really great. Way to go. You did a great job. Take all the spoil that's your reward because you are a mighty warrior. You are awesome. This guy, he sounds a lot like a certain serpent back in Genesis 3 in the Garden of God. They forget God from the equation. You are awesome. Do you know how awesome you are? Like you need more self-esteem. You need to like really revel in your achievements because you deserve so much more credit and attention than this guy's gonna give you over here. That's the message of the king of Sodom. You're awesome, forget God, let's puff you up with pride. The king of Salem comes with a very different message. First of all, I just want to point this out because it's fun. He doesn't come empty-handed with the words, give me, like the king of Sodom. 
He comes with a feast to give and to bless out of the overflow of his abundance. And he comes with this feast, and he says to Abram, Abram, way to go. He blesses Abram, which you you might say, like, didn't you just say not to bless Abram? No, I didn't say that. I said, he sounds like the devil. Um, But the king of Salem doesn't. The king of Salem, what he says is, blessed be Abram. But listen to the nuance in how he says it. Listen to where the focus is. Verse 19, blessed be Abram by God most high. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. And and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. What, What the king of Salem is saying is he's saying, Abram, this victory, it ultimately belongs to God. It's ultimately God's doing. And so good job being a faithful servant. It is good and right to recognize and celebrate acts of faithfulness. I brought this feast for you. I want to celebrate you. I want to bless you because God is pleased with your act of faith here, Abram. But don't you dare think that that is what won the victory here. Don't you dare begin to base your life on that because you've got to remember that God's the one that worked through your imperfect kind of kooky little plan. And so way to be faithful, but let's also make sure to thank the one who worked through your imperfect and kooky little plan. Let's make sure God gets the glory. And so Abram has a choice to make. Will he attribute this success to his military acumen and write the book on how to win armies and fights and take all the success for himself? Or will he attribute the ultimate victory to the God who gave this mighty army into his hands? And if you think that's a no-brainer, you've clearly never been there. Because what we see throughout the Bible is that whenever God's people step out in faith and experience any amount of success, I mean, I don't care how small it is, Whenever the people of God step out in faith and begin to see the smallest amount of success, what ten, there's this tendency to forget God, to forget who they trusted in in the first place. There's this tendency to begin to believe their own hype, to think that we did this great thing. And hear me, that tendency ruins everything. This is every book of the Bible. It's like this king started out great. He had great faith in God. He was really great until he became strong. And then it went really really badly because he forgot God. He gave in to pride. He listened to the king of Sodom and the devil before him, not Melchizedek and the God that he serves. Because when you forget the God who is ultimately working in this thing, and not only, hear this, it not only robs God of glory, which is a serious problem, it not only robs God of the glory that he is due, but it begins to put this impossible godlike pressure on you and I that will eventually crush us. Now, I'm learning this in my life right now. And just to have some real talk with you, we are starting to see um, God moving in this church again in ways that can't be explained. Uh, we're, we're starting to see of, of those 841 baptisms, we had three baptisms, like the first in years here in the last couple of months. 
We're starting to see Jesus on the move. I mean, it feels like every week after service, I meet someone that's new here, that God's brought here, that God's clearly working in their life. And I'm like, that's really cool. And the last several months, it's been like, man, I am starting to be able to see that Jesus is moving here. And even last week, I um, had this moment of pretty profound spiritual attack while preaching. And I felt like it went awful. And then hearing the stories of what God did with that and how God moved through the message last week, I don't know where it began to happen, but here's what began to happen in my soul. I started to think, well, then I better get this sermon right. Just being real with you, I, and, and, and I, didn't, I didn't say those words, but something at the belief center of my heart started thinking I was a little bit more central to these things than I really am. And, and I don't even know where it happened, but I, 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 I began to forget where the power in this church lies. And, and, and so it ruins everything. So, so what began to happen is um, I obsessed over the details of today. I got grouchy with people that, that weren't like making it happen like I wanted it to. I was short with Karen at home, so when she'd ask me questions about my day, I felt interrogated. To where by Thursday when I got home, I crashed. I felt physically exhausted. I laid down for an entire day. I thought I had COVID, so I took a COVID test. Now the room just got tense. I don't have COVID. Here's what I have. A sinful, wicked, foolish heart that tends to forget the God who's been so gracious to me. And so do you. Until glory, when this body goes into the ground and God makes us new, we're always going to war between the old heart in us and the new heart that the Holy Spirit gives us. And this week, I felt that war. I felt how easy this temptation feels when it comes to begin to think that maybe I'm more important to this and I need to nail the details of this. This is what sin does to us. We tend to forget God. We tend to think too much of ourselves. We tend to think we're too important. We rob God of glory and we put impossible God-like expectations on us and it just ruins everything. That's what sin does. Here's what God does. God works and he woos to where I went for a run this weekend. I'm like, I don't know how to end this sermon. Melchizedek's cool. The guy from Sodom seems like kind of a jerk. I'm not sure what to do with that. So I'm running, and then God <laughs> wakes me up, and he begins to reveal all the things I'm telling you right now to where I'm like, oh my gosh, and I have to preach this on Sunday? He begins to show me, like, that's not yours to take. And you're not that impressive. Trust me. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. That's coming at the same time as, and I'm still on your side, and I still love you. And so as I repented of that, on that run, I literally felt a physical weight lift from me. This is what God does. Yes. And so I can't let, leave this sermon without you seeing Jesus. Because here's the thing, I tell you that for a couple of reasons. I tell you that because I want you to know this is a struggle we'll all face. But I also tell you that I don't ever want you to think I'm more than I am. I don't ever want to pretend to be more with you. There's one hero in this church and his name is Jesus. And I cannot leave this text without helping you see Jesus here. Because the New Testament, by the time the New Testament comes around, 
The authors of the New Testament, they love this guy, Melchizedek. They're, they're going to say things like, hey, a king from Jerusalem whose name means king of righteousness, that reminds us of someone. And isn't it interesting that in a book full of genealogies, that this mighty king that even Abram recognizes as a superior, he doesn't get any fancy genealogy. He just kind of bursts onto the scene. It's, it almost reminds us of someone that doesn't have an earthly father or a genealogy that we could write down. The author of Hebrews will pick that up and begin to make this point. See, because if the king of Sodom is a shadow of Satan in this story, he's not the only shadow in this story. Towering, standing there towering over Abram, the king of Sodom, and every other king in this story is the shadow of the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords who would one day come to the earth, not empty-handed saying, give me, give me, but he would come full of blessing, full of life, full of grace, full of truth to bless God's imperfect people. And not by proclaiming not by proclaiming simply, God bless you, but being God himself. He became God's blessing and fulfilled the promise from Genesis 3 to Genesis 12 to the end of the Bible. He, in his flesh, fulfilled the promise that Melchizedek spoke over Abram, that the Lord bless you on the cross. He became that blessing by dying in our place for our sins to redeem us from all the ways that we fall short, to redeem us from our pride and our sinful tendencies, to take that away from us and say, that has been dealt with. Here is a new life, and if you receive it by faith, you can live based on my life and my power, not based on what you can do in your flesh. This is what Jesus has done. And so he offers us live by faith in my sacrifice, in my life, in my power, which, catch this, is the coolest part. We remember these things through a meal that has bread and wine. Or in a Baptist church, it has grape juice. We are going to remember that in just a moment all together here because it's our birthday and we want to do this all together. Um, before we do that, I just want to quickly give you that third lesson. Some of you are like, you never gave us the third lesson. Here it is. Worship your way through every victory. Worship your way through every victory. When presented with this choice, Abram gives a tenth of everything to the king of Sodom. Or excuse me, not the king of Sodom, the king of Salem, which is where we get the idea of tithing from. We say this all the time, but giving is one of our forms of worship to God. And he doesn't only do that. Catch this. He testifies to God's goodness to the king of Sodom. He says, no, 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 you have it all wrong. God is the ultimate victor in this battle. And so, look, I don't share my struggle with you so that you're like, well, I'll be sure not to tell pastor if I'm ever encouraged ever again. That's not what I'm saying. I want us to be a church that shares the stories of what Jesus is doing. I'm saying we should be prepared to worship when we hear them. Because if we don't worship our way through them, we will destroy ourselves. We will rob God of glory and we will get off the mission. It's as Abram worships his way for victory that he can tell the story of what God has done. So I hope that we would be a church that can tell our stories of what we're seeing in our lives with Jesus as the hero. By all means, don't be afraid to say, here's what God did through you, through me. This is what I'm seeing, but let's make sure to make Jesus the hero. And as we, like Abram, Join in Melchizedek in worship and praising God for the victory. I think he'll keep us going just like he kept Abram going. Father God, I thank you that you are the God that we read about in this text. 
that we're not reading about some idea that we're trying to psych ourselves up for, but that you, the God of Abraham, you're in this room. You are alive and you are as big in our day as you were in Abram's day. And so I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to believe that right now. Would you get our eyes up to see your son Jesus, to see the bigness of his grace? Would you help us to be blown away by your love for us? And out of that, would you help us to expect that you could do that kind of thing in the lives of those that we love? Would you fill us with fresh faith that we like Abram and so many before us here might get in the game and see what you would do through our lives. We love you. We entrust our lives and the future of this church to you. In the beautiful name of Jesus, I ask. Amen.